It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome to Money for Lunch. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for stopping by. I am so grateful for your support. Uh, You guys have supported the show for many, many years, and we appreciate it. it's uh, it's wonderful to be able to do this uh, in conjunction with some of the other stuff that I do. Um, I've gotten to meet a lot of great people and develop some wonderful friendships that otherwise would not have happened. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Um, all right. So quote of the day, with pride, there are many curses. With humility, there are many blessings. And that is by Ezra Taft Benson. With pride, there are many curses. With humility, there are many blessings. Man, I can attest to that. Uh, All right, let's get this party started. On the show today uh, is Dr. Carla Marie Manley. Uh, Dr. Carla is a practicing clinical psychologist based in Sonoma County, California, and a recognized authority on fear and fear-based disorders such as trauma, anxiety, and depression. She worked with individuals and groups to improve personal growth, relationship connection, and increased life fulfillment. Her highly personalized approach focuses on utilizing transformational fear in the self-growth and healing process. Dr. Carla Manley, welcome to Money for Lunch. Hello, thank you for having me, Bert. I appreciate it. You bet, you bet, you bet. And I'm excited because you have a, a new book out, uh, is Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. And I think that, uh, uh, what do you call it? That is such a uh, captivating title there, or at least the subtitle is definitely uh, captivating, right? Because most of us think that fear and, let's say, friend or fear and joy are opposites. And in this case, we're going to try to make fear our friend. So uh, I'm excited to have you to talk about this because I think a lot of us lose out to our fears. A lot of us are living less than what we could because of our fears, right? Absolutely. And um, the way that the book, to distill the book, is the idea that fear is something that we often run away from or compartmentalize or we aren't even aware of how much it unconsciously drives us. And I'm not talking about a realistic fear of getting you know, bitten by a snarling dog. I'm talking about what I call the irrational fears those secret fears that tend to hide in our brain and uh, talk to us, telling us that we are not enough or that we should be doing this or should be doing that. So that's the premise, the foundation of the book. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. All right. So, so um, let's talk about um, what are the most common fears that people experience. Give me, give me your take on this. You know, I think that when we move out of the 
the realm of realistic fears, right? The realm that says, hey, there might be a war or my car might, you know, get in a crash, something like that. When we move into the unconscious, the unrealistic, often irrational fears that tend to drive us, I think at the root of most of those, because I did a lot of research, qualitative and quantitative, and what you find at the bottom of it is that people are afraid of not being loved. And there are many ways that that comes out, whether it's a fear of being betrayed or a fear of being abandoned or a fear of not fitting into the group, a fear of not being as happy as somebody else. All of those essentially, if we keep distilling them, they come down to, will I be safe? Will I be loved? So there you have it. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, when when you think about, or at least in my life, when I think about all the stuff that I've done based on fear, uh, I think you're right. I mean, it does boil down to some level of uh, I'm not going to be loved. I'm not going to be enough. I'm not going to be accepted or, or, you know, uh, some people, you know, people are going to make fun of me or, or something like that. And uh, many, many, many years ago, I remember doing a survey and asking smokers why they smoked. And uh, let's see, Something like 96, 96% of the people that were surveyed uh, said that the reason they smoked is because they wanted to be accepted. That was ultimately, you know, they had some variation of being accepted or being part of the group, which, again, is another variation of being loved. Absolutely, because if you take it, you know, there's a concept in psychology where they often talk about at our root of fear is our fear of death. That that's what we are all ultimately afraid of. And I understand that and I understand the concept behind it. But the reason I steer away from it is because that's not where we really live on a day-to-day basis for most of us. We really feel the death of relationship, the death of connection. Um, so, And I think that that's the part because we know as animals in a really – cellular basic level that if we are not connected if we are not loved if we are not safe some you know big animal is going to come in and eat us and that's a very primitive part of the brain so we do want to be safe we do want to be accepted we do want to be part of the group and that motivates us um, in many ways some of them are healthy you know, the desire to sit down and talk to somebody, that's a healthy motivation toward connection. But many times those fears motivate us in unhealthy ways. And a really easy example of that is somebody who stays in an abusive relationship, right? They're motivated for a place to be, any place to be loved, and they're willing to take it you know, willing to take the abuse, thinking, well, you know, at least it's a known, at least I'm in, you know, somebody loves me. So again, it comes back to so many times we are unconsciously motivated to accept things that are not good for us because we fear being alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Back to the abusive example, you know, it's, it's not bad all the time, right? (laughs) you know, uh, it's, the relationship's only bad when he or she drinks. So, you know, it's like you said, it's better than, than, uh, than being alone. So, uh, yeah, it's as humans, we are a weird bunch. Uh, you know, the, what do you call it? The, uh, 
we didn't come with an owner's manual. And I think that uh, no, we didn't. <laughs> and I think that just <laughs> you know it just, it's just go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it's interesting that you say that because that is why I wrote Joy from Fear. I wrote the book I wished somebody had put in my hands when I was 18 and said, read this, do the work, do the exercises, do it, because that is how the book is designed. It is designed as an owner's manual for current real life, not life as it was in the 50s or the 70s, but life as it is today with all of its stressors. Oh, and so that we can learn to look at what is causing us anxiety. We can learn to look at what is causing us to feel depressed or, um, you know, chronically on edge, chronically stressed. And the idea of joy from fear, because each chapter moves you through various elements of what leads to a dysfunctional life or a dissatisfied life so that you can slowly but surely work your way through it, learning to look at these fears. They're there. Whether we face them or not, they're there. So why not learn to face them, understand them, be aware of how they control us, and then through that awareness, Bert, that's the beauty. It is through the awareness then we become empowered to change our lives. And that's where the transformational fear comes in. That is how we make fear our friends, not by being shamed or feeling less than, but by by becoming empowered through understanding self-awareness. Yeah, I love that. And again, the book is Joy from Fear, um, available on Amazon. I'm going to put a link here in the show notes. Uh, joy from fear, create the life of your dreams by making fear your friend. Um, let me ask you this, um, because, again, joy seems so far from fear. So, so talk about this. Why is joy, what is joy, and how is joy related to fear? Okay, beautiful question. So let me first um, – explain the difference between happiness and joy because they're often used interchangeably, but they're different. Just like pleasure is often confused with happiness. Pleasure is derived from feeling good from some sort of substance generally or some sort of action or activity, right? Happiness is a, is a, is a level beyond that, which is that you feel happy because you're doing something, right? Because you're with someone or watching a good movie, something like that. So that's happiness. What is joy? How is that different? So when we look at joy, it is one of our five basic emotions. And I use the paradigm, paradigm of five basic emotions because it's the one that is really easy to understand as well as being authentic and true. So in our five core emotions, we have fear. We have anger. We have disgust. We have sadness. And we have joy. And all of those emotions, every one of them, has its roots in primitive survival mechanisms. How do we, how do we know this? Anger. I'm, I'm pretending I'm a mama, mama bear with a baby cub, right? I get right. angry if somebody messes with my baby cub, right? I get sad if my baby cub is hurt, so I take care of it, you know, survival of the species. I eat something that's rancid, so I don't want to feed it to the baby cub. That's disgust. Ugh, I don't want that. Um, 
fear somebody's coming and lurking around me and my baby cub. I, I'm on heightened alert. Do I freeze? Do I flee? Do, what do I do? So where does joy come in? Joy. We would not exist if it weren't for joy as humans because joy is that look that the mama bear gives to her child when the child looks back and says, ah, this is all worth it. The baby smiled at me and cooed and, you know, my little bear cub is wonderful. That's where joy is. And joy, Bert, when I look at joy, so that's the relationship. So if you look at the relationship there, why? So the fear is the threat of everything being taken away. The joy is the ease of knowing that everything is good and wonderful. And I theorize that we are all born in a fairly joyful state, as if we, have, we are like a little votive candle with this natural glowing light. And that if you put that votive in the glass case that is life and you let soot build up, whether through um, trauma in childhood, abuse, uh, life experiences that are confusing and cause buildup, we lose our we lose our connection to joy. We lose the connection, and it gets a little sooty, and we feel like we're sad, anxious, depressed. When really, if we are able to continually wipe away the soot, the life experiences that are negative, then we come back to our natural state of joy. We get fearful if something realistic is on the horizon that's going to harm us, and we use that fear to move forward. But other than that, we're not living in this place of fear. And so that's how I look at joy, and that's how in, in joy from fear. I guide readers how to leave toxic, sooty behaviors behind and how to move toward behaviors and ways of being that naturally feel right. Yeah. You know, and sometimes uh, it's sad, but sometimes we have to leave people behind, right? Or at least distance ourselves. Absolutely. There is an entire chapter on that. Of it's, it permeates the book, but it, because relationships are so important to humans, relationships are one of our biggest joys, but they're also one of our biggest challenges. And in the work that I do, whether with clients or in the book Joy from Fear, it's the idea of let's look at our relationships. First, the relationship with the self, right? And then right. once you get clearer on that, then you can look at the relationships in your life, whether it's your life partner, whether it's your boyfriend, whether it's your, you know, sister, which ones are in a healthy state and which ones are in a less than healthy state, even a toxic state. And when you start realizing that, then the next step is moving over and saying, okay, well, this relationship is healthy. It's okay. So I don't have to focus on that. I have to care for it and feed it. But this relationship over here leaves me feeling hurt abused, confused. So then we learn how to go to the other person to get their buy-in if they want to work on the relationship and then work to heal it. If the person doesn't want to buy into that, doesn't want to put in the energy, then we have two choices. We continue with the toxic or unhealthy relationship, or as you said, we depart with grace and integrity and leave that relationship behind. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty tough uh, stuff, but very empowering. Well, you know what, and 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 it's just what you have to do. I mean, it, it's just 
unfortunate. It, like you said, it's tough stuff, but it's something that you have to do. Um, so, so, okay, so let's talk about this because your book also touches on this subject, which I think is very important. Uh, how can I or how can a person get unstuck in life? I get asked that a lot, Bert, and what I say, and people even say, you know, can, can I just have a magic pill? Can I have a magic pill? And there is no magic pill, of <laughs> course, to get unstuck. You are the magic pill. You have the intelligence, the wisdom, and the wherewithal to go inside to find out where you are stuck. And that is the most powerful place of all. Because once we become aware of where we're stuck, and then we can decide with slow and certain steps, and repeating those steps is necessary to slowly create the life that we want. It doesn't happen overnight. Just like moving from, you know, one tiny home into the home of your dreams. That doesn't happen overnight, right? You have to save the money. You have to lay the foundation. You have to get the walls built. You have to do all the work. And then someday you move in after several years and you go, oh, I'm in the home of my dreams. It doesn't happen overnight. And if it doesn't happen with, quickly with something as tangible as the home of your dreams, how and why can we expect ourselves to create the life of our dreams overnight with an anti-anxiety pill, with an antidepressant, with a beer, with a glass of wine? It's not going to help. What helps is our self-awareness and then our courage and commitment to manifesting the change. That is the only way, and it is the most powerful way. You know, and it's funny that you mention that whole, you know, pill stuff, because if you, if you watch TV, there are a bunch of different ads, and, and, and one ad that sticks out, I don't remember the brand or anything like that, but it says, hey, if, if, you're, if you're taking anti-depression medicine and it's not helping, then, you know, take this, you know, add this to it, right? Take this, uh, take this medicine mm -hmm. and add it to it. And it's one of those things where it's, um, it just goes to show you that pills aren't always the answer. Now, they may be a bridge. They may be able to help you, give you some, you know, st give you some stability till you make a change and get you to another place, but if you're just expecting the pill to solve everything, then before you know it, you're going to be adding another pill and a third pill and a fourth pill. And, you know, it's just, you have to make that internal change. As you said, it's where it's the most powerful permanent change you can make. And I agree with you 100%, Bert. And to, for listeners to know, there is no shame in using medication. If right. you need medication, as you said, as a bridge, that is part of what you need in your wellness program. Here is where I have the trouble, and it sounds like we're on the same page, that 57% of individuals who see their doctor for a mental health issue are not given psychotherapy. They are not mm. given, they are just thrown a pill that the, that the doc hopes will be the right one. 
blood work is, you know, they don't do the work to find out. And we do have the technology out there with in the world of um, pharmacogenomics to actually dial in medication better, but it's too expensive for us regular people, right? And so right. they're throwing pills at people not knowing how effective they will be. And then there's the poor patient, the poor client, feeling broken or defective when it doesn't work, and it's not their fault. And the only people who make money with this methodology are the big pharmaceutical companies, and the insurance companies, and it is the patients, it is the clients who suffer. And so that's where I say, hey, if you're given the right medication and it's working for you, and you're also getting psychotherapy to get to the root issues, more power to you. That is the best bridge in the world to wellness, if that is what you need. Absolutely. You Absolutely. tell them a little passionate about the subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, and, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you are. There needs to be that passion out there. There are a lot of people who, who trust their doctors too much, and when the doctor doesn't do, doesn't do the, the, the best, doesn't do what's the best interest for their patient, that patient suffers, and the family suffers, and the community suffers, and, and all this other stuff. Uh, all right, so let's talk about this because we're short on time, but I wanted to talk about uh, what are some of the keys uh, or a few keys to creating balance in one's daily life? Because I think this is one of those other big topics out there. Okay, before we jump to that, I just want to say one last thing about the docs. I sure. try to not fault the docs because the docs are in a broken system where yes, they, are they are often given. I know with my primary care physician, she's given about 10 minutes per patient and she is a GP. She is not a psychiatrist, right? So she is, if I went in and asked for a med, you know, she has 10 minutes to evaluate me with all my host of issues and get me out the door. And that is the part with the system that is broken. It is a sick care system, not a wellness system, not a wellness care system. So now I've said that. So back to your question, what are the ways that we can, I just had to put that in there because I feel badly for the, for, for the, for the, you know, the, the dispensing physicians. Um, sure. So how can we create more balance in life? I really like, again, to ask when I'm working with a client, and again, this is something I do enjoy from fear. There's a chapter devoted to slow it down. Look at your life as an objective bystander. Step out of it and then go through your day from beginning to end, from your surroundings to how you wake up. Are you waking up to the chatter of technology? Are you waking up to check on your you know, cell phone immediately, you know, loud, abrasive noise, um, news? What is it? So then, and how, now if that's how you're starting your day, well, your day is going to start feeling stressed and worried and anxious, right? And then kind of moving through your day and looking at where you have control. There are many places in life where we don't have control, but really evaluating your life with with love and appreciation about what, where can I make micro adjustments that will be improvements for me, such as another piece, there is, you know, a sleep deprivation epidemic. What can you do? 50% of adults don't get sufficient sleep. 90% of older teenagers do not get sufficient sleep. 
And of course, the body recharges during that seven to eight hours of sleep time for adults. It's, it's you know, eight to 10 hours for, for younger, um, younger teens. So we have to look at, are we doing what must be done, getting to bed at a consistent time, doing what we need to to have uninterrupted sleep, keeping our bedrooms free of technology and, you know, things that are disruptive to sleep so that we can wake up. Because if we aren't getting, I start with the sleep thing, Bert, because if we aren't getting sufficient sleep, then we don't think as clearly. We don't function cognitively at our optimal level, and we are more emotionally reactive. So how can we expect ourselves? It's like, how do we get on the tightrope of balance of life? You know, the tightrope of life. How do we balance on that tightrope if we are sleep deprived? Yet we put ourselves behind the wheel and do our tightrope act when we are many people getting five, six hours of sleep, some much less. So again, how do we find balance? We start with what we can control, which is our daily rituals, and do our best to create habits that feel right and healthy, and then to be patient with ourselves over time as we change our patterns. They're not neurobiologically. We aren't wired in a way that's going to allow us to change overnight. We have to make small changes and repeat them and repeat them and repeat them until they become the new habit. And so it's, it's tactics like that, strategies that I help people look at throughout the book so that they can create slow and steady changes that will manifest into a life that they may not recognize. It will be so peaceful and so filled with joy and so filled with connection that they'll wonder how they lived without it. Yeah. You know what? And I can attest uh, the whole sleep thing. Uh you know, this idea of sleeping less and working longer and, and then, um, you know, there, there is an epidemic about uh, energy drinks, right? Uh, they've become socialized. They've become this acceptable mm-hmm. norm. And uh, that adds to, I think, anxiety. It adds to sleeplessness. It adds to uh, all sorts of other issues. Uh, these drinks are, for the most part, poisonous. Uh, this is my opinion. I've not done any research, but you, you know, if you if you need an energy drink, you know, every day, you probably just need to take some time and get better sleep. And there's some people who drink several energy drinks a day. You seriously need to rethink your priorities. And let me tell you, I I started this years ago, so I started shutting down at uh, nine o'clock at night, meaning I, I turn off my phone, turn off all, uh, you know, all electronics and just start to wind down. Well, since then, I'm now up that to eight o'clock at night. So at eight o'clock at night, I start to shut down. And, you know, sleep has become one of my main goals for health and well-being and clarity and if I'm feeling run down, if I'm feeling, uh, I don't know, frustrated, uh, whatever, I will take a nap. <laughs> you know, they call it a power nap for a reason. And let me tell you, they are fantastic. And if you're not willing to slow down and take a nap, and, and when I say take a nap, I used to bring a pillow. I have a pillow in my office, and I would crawl under the desk and sleep for 20 or 30 minutes. 
And, it's, and if that wasn't something I could do, then I would go out to my car and take a nap out there. Sometimes a nap is so much better than an energy drink, and it's, and it's a clue that you need to get more sleep. Absolutely, Bert, and I am so with you, and you will love the fact, I haven't seen the research, I heard just last week that there is now new research out on the destructive effects, the long-term destructive effects of energy drinks. So what you're saying, you know, and intuiting, it just makes sense, right? And now we have the research to back it up. So people who are living on energy drinks, you know, caffeine, whatever it is, remember that it's, it's wise to slow down, just like you said, to find out what's going on underneath that I'm not able to function in a healthy way without these crutches. And crutches that are not regular crutches, these are toxic crutches. It's like using a crutch that's going to blow up under your arm when you're using it, right? And so that's you know what I would really encourage. I love that you brought the energy drink issue up because it is problematic. And when I, I've worked with um, uh, I did a stint on probation and found that you know working with people who were on probation um, years ago and found that many of them who were uh, diagnosed with uh, supposedly ADHD simply were suffering from lack of a proper diet. Not to say that ADHD doesn't exist, but if you're supplanting you know, healthy food with sugar, energy drinks, caffeine, corn dogs, and um, pizza and ice cream sandwiches and Coca-Colas, excuse me, no mention of of particular, (laughs) you know what I'm saying, then you are going to certainly suffer. Your body will suffer. And when your body suffers, so will your mind. So will your relationships. We're interrelated that way. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm a big believer that how you feel is more important than what you know, uh, and how you feel, a lot of it is determined by, you know, diet, by sleep, by all these other things, and so when you're tired and fatigued, you're, you're less likely to be confident, you're less likely to, to make a phone call and ask for a, an appointment or make a sale or anything of that nature, as opposed to when you're well-rested and you're on a good diet uh, and, and you're able to focus, then life changes. Um, Dr. Carla Manley, we're out of time. I want to say thank you so much for stopping by and sharing your time and sharing your book. The book, again, is Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend, available uh, on Amazon. I'm going to put the link in the show notes as well. Dr. Manley, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thank you, Bert. Have a beautiful day. Take good care. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. You bet. Good stuff there from Dr. Carla Manley. Um, As always, my friends, let's share this episode. Let's help as many people understand how to deal with fear and some of the other great stuff that we talked about, um, you know, how to uh, maybe incorporate more sleep. And, and how to, um, what do you call it, uh, to just uh, go from a, from a fear state to a joy state and really create the dreams, uh, create the life of their dreams. Um, and as always, remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch and check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.